0: listener production immigration makes us better as a nation of course i would think that as an immigrant there is still a level there that shouldn't shouldn't be the right level and i find that hard to figure out exactly what that is it gives me real pause when i think about is it as simple as slowing down that tap i don't know
1: g'day i'm scott phillips the motley fools chief investment officer and more importantly for our purposes the host of the good oil now hopefully by now you know exactly what we do here at the good oil but if you don't know the phrase the good oil is giving someone the good stuff the important stuff and the real stuff which is exactly what we try to do with this podcast we bring you conversations with entrepreneurs executives and experts the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen Now, today's guest is, as usual, someone who really does know what's going on, has done so for ages and has been required reading for me for a very, very long time. She is the economics correspondent for CapitalBrief.com. You may know her from her work on the Fairfax Papers or anywhere around the economics world. Jennifer Duke, welcome to The Good Oil.
0: Thank you very much for having me. You're very sweet to say all that. I feel like I've been gillated into this.
1: It is all 100% true (laughs) and our listeners are going to get a heap of value out of this conversation. Mate, can I say, though, the one one thing I haven't mentioned about you which should go at the very top of the pile is you and I both competed in a year-long shares race. Yes, we
0: did. Gosh, that was a while ago. With the
1: Fairfax papers or the Nine Papers. It was. (laughs) And can I say I came second... To the lady I am speaking with today, so maybe maybe our role should reverse. Maybe maybe Jennifer, you should be doing the stock picking, and I should be uh, I should be doing the talking. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, well, I, went-
0: I hope you notice I didn't do the second year because I finish like, <laughs> on a fluky high, in you know, a beginner's luck. So.
1: Uh, no, not beginner's luck, but that is exactly what you should do, right? Stop when you're ahead. That's what, that is life advice to live by. I think undefeated champion of the shares race. <laughs>
0: that's right for one year.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need. That's all you need. Goes on the CV. That's right. Speaking of CV, um, you find yourself at at capitalbrief.com now, but maybe before we get into the the details of the economics and what's going on in the world, because that's your your brief and and what you're Mm. expert at, but can I start by asking how you came to pursue a career in economics journalism?
0: Yeah, gosh, it's it's a really funny one, actually, because I um, I always wanted to be a reporter. So I knew that that was going to be a thing in my life ever since I was really, really young. When I went to university and studied um, and I graduated and I was too nervous to apply for a cadetship at any of the big papers. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I was very good enough and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go apply for magazines because I quite liked, this shows how old I'm getting, but I quite liked magazines and there were a lot of careers in magazines at the time. <laughs> and I had a few different job offers and two of them appealed to me and one of them was at a craft magazine and the other one was at a property investment magazine. And I went to my tutor at the time who was a mentor and I said, which one? I really like the idea of doing craft. And she said, I will kill you if you don't go and do finance and investment. And I said, okay. And then from day one, I pretty much fell in love with it. And then the economics came because... While I was there, I was actually um helping ghostwrite Shane Oliver's column. He used to do a monthly column for that magazine. And it was my first kind of foray into interest rates. And I I just got obsessed. So then I went and studied again, did some more economics, and then took a slow path into getting into it into the mainstream papers because it's a little bit of a competitive space to get into <laughs> economics at um sort of at Fairfax now nine. So mm. yeah, that's how that's how I got into it.
1: Very So in some parallel universe, you're currently on a craft podcast. Are you talking about That's right.
0: Which is all the stuff I do when I'm not doing economics. <laughs> it's all like, you know, scrapbooking and knitting and all those things that sort of my shadow self in another universe is doing. That's right.
1: <laughs> and maybe you're reading economics newspapers for, for fun because you're looking for That's, a job, I'm yes, not sure.
0: yes, some strange, some very strange parallel universe where people, you know, constantly look at RBA rates even though they're not writing about them.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hey, speaking of sliding doors, let's let's kind of start there because obviously the last three or four years have been a remarkable time in, in history. Um, mm. it, it's always the case that you look back on a period of time and say, wow, that's unusual, that's, that's strange or whatever. I think a once-in-a-century pandemic pretty much does qualify. You know, we have lots of once-in-a-century events that seem to happen every three or four years these days, but hopefully for all our sakes, this is a genuine once-in-a-century thing we've been through. And speaking of sliding doors, I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus here. I saw <laughs> COVID coming and, and went, wow, well, we've seen SARS and we've seen MERS and these things are kind of, you know, a big deal for a little while in parts of the world and they go away. This one's probably going to be no different. Now, that, <laughs> was, that was that was colossally wrong. Luckily, I didn't make any particular investment decisions on the basis of it. So uh, it wasn't like I tried to make a prediction and run with it. But, but given that sliding door, mate, given what's happened since then, uh, and this is going to be a horribly broad question, but can you kind of reflect on the last those last four years or maybe the three years since since the uh, the outbreak and kind of just share your thoughts on how you feel the economy's ebbed and flowed and and kind of how we got through that period uh, to kind of get out of it maybe maybe kind of finishing mm. at the beginning of this year um, how would you, how would you characterize how would you reflect on on that kind of the pandemic period of, of COVID-19?
0: you know it's funny because i love a horribly broad question to start with i'm (laughs) i'm it's one of those things that i constantly do to people and they're like how am i supposed to answer that so that's always (laughs) that's always fun but covid is a really interesting one because during the pandemic itself i'd literally just moved to canberra and i was working in parliament writing about the economy and it was my sort of first big economics writing job and i remember coming in there was a few months there like at the beginning of Well, the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, where things were kind of normal. And we're just sort of hearing (laughs) about that. All the graphs were normal. And then suddenly everything kind of went crazy. You know, like every graph went Mm. completely nuts. No one had ever seen anything like it. And so that was actually like my first big everyone lost their minds, including the economy. Now, I actually think this year, because when you when you invited me on to do this, I'm gonna break the fourth wall for a second for your your listeners. That when you when you invited me on and you said that we want to do a bit of a recap of sort of 2023. Uh, One of the things that I thought about was that this is kind of the bookend of the COVID period, I hope. I say that with both fingers very much crossed, because it feels like the inflation stuff that we've been dealing with this year and all of these like really painful cost of living crisis issues, um, some of the geopolitics, stuff like that, has been a bit of a hangover from COVID. So we saw obviously all that money get pumped through. I remember the government announcing a lot of that and just, you know, the word unprecedented being every other day, you know, (laughs) we got really sick of hearing that, right? Because it was suddenly like government's doing things that they weren't expecting to do and and pumping households with this cash to keep us afloat and we didn't do too badly. Like everyone was going, you know, you kind of looked back and the the two years of it were chaotic and then you look back and you went, actually, that was, I mean, it was rocky, but we're all okay and (laughs) that was sort of an unusual vibe, you know, economically at the end of it. And then the last sort of... 18 months haven't felt as okay. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like we've had that delayed hangover effect from COVID from all that money coming through and we're sort of slowly unwinding that. And I truly hope that, you know, I mean, calendar is an arbitrary kind of measurements really, but I really do hope that we're kind of coming up to the end now where this is that bookend piece on that COVID period. So, you know, think about it. We saw that um, weird spike in unemployment that got handled really quickly because I think that from memory, what happened when when I was in Parliament was that uh, Josh Reinerberg started seeing that then Treasurer started seeing the unemployment numbers tick up. We were all writing articles about a potential Great Depression. There were forecasts of twenty percent house price drops. Like it was, it was like the world was imploding, and then they poured all this money in and everything kind of smoothed out. So you know, it's been a really interesting period because I think we all have to remember to be really grateful for the fact that we haven't had that really deep, deep recession from COVID. Of course, we went through a little bit of a one, but not quite as bad as it could have been. And I know now there's a lot of people in pain, but kind of when you measure out what could have been, I'm actually pretty grateful about where we are at the moment.
1: I think that, you know, the where we are now, as you say, owes much to where we've been. And I think it's very easy for people to look at look at what happened and ignore the counterfactuals uh, imagining a world where the government doesn't re- respond with you know effectively fast big and ugly you know the 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 support that had lots of holes in it and hopefully the the then government would do things differently a second time around hopefully the rest of us if we have gotten that position or, or had that opportunity would do things slightly differently but but they needed to do it big fast and ugly it, it goes of the of the 2009 Rudd and Wayne Swan cash splash they just needed to do something to fix things and i think you know that that was for all of the problems and all of the all of the consequences, I think a world where we have fifteen percent unemployment and house prices fall twenty five percent is you know the, 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 a much a far worse outcome than where we find ourselves now.
0: Unthinkable. It's interesting because it feels like, um, and particularly journalists, but I think in general the public we're all very willing to be critical of. Governments, right? Like we love it when someone's written an article that's really angry about either side. You know, there's people on both sides of the of the aisle that want to have a go. But I actually do feel like when you look at everything, we're not in that bad a position. And that that probably sounds really heartless to some people right now because we know that there are some people really struggling with their mortgages who are looking at twenty four going, you know, and just aren't meeting no matter how hard you squeeze. And I completely understand that and feel for those people. But I also know that if we're not, if we hadn't done what we've done through the last few years, it would be a lot worse right now. And we'd be having an entirely different conversation, um, you know, And it's just sort of interesting to remember that in in the broad. Um, now, that's not to say there shouldn't be certain things done to help those people who are suffering at the moment, but uh, economically we're not as bad as, as it could have been. So <laughs> you can tell i an optimist. No, I, you? I like it. Man. I think we well, well, you know, need
1: to be, and I think it's, we're right to be. Um, and I think it's also true, what I like about the nuance of your answer then was, you know what, we're much better off than we could have been. And some people are still doing it tough, and those two things can be true at the same time. And I think that absolutely cuts through the narrative of there must be one five-word sentence to describe everything. So either everyone's, everyone's it doing was. it tough, or I everyone's wish okay. Was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, it'd be nice if we can solve some people's problems that easily too, right? But but that's kind of where we that's kind of where we find ourselves. I, I think I, I'm curious now, us to your thoughts looking back. And let's use 2020 hindsight. So let's acknowledge that the policymakers at the time you know, didn't have the opportunity to, to, to see these things coming and, and through just accidents of history, circumstances roll out, maybe ideology on, on either or both sides of parliament. But given where we're at, I'm, I'm going to throw you a, a supposition that we did the right things during COVID or during the pandemic part of the COVID um, uh, outbreak, but we, we flubbed the opportunity to correct course. Coming out the other side, that a lot of the current circumstances with very high inflation, obviously the higher interest rates that have, have been needed to fix that, have their have their very roots in in the the right or the, roughly right response to to the pandemic, but maybe we missed the opportunity to sort of course correct more quickly and therefore minimise the, the the depth and the and the length of what's had to be done to effectively get us back on an even keel.
0: I think that's a really interesting question, and I mean, I don't know that I have all the answers to this at all, but I would say I have a few, probably a few reflections here. One would be that um, the inflation challenge we've been experiencing is something that I think very few people have any actual memory of, like particularly on the younger end of the spectrum, right? And, And including in Parliament, there's not actually that many Treasurers and politicians who have much of a hands-on experience with with this kind of a crisis. So there's probably a lack of um, a lack of deep knowledge there. So that's probably point number one. And I would say I would say on the point number two, governments tend to move really slowly. So yes, we saw a lot of fast action during COVID because it had to be done. And as you mentioned, those things are very much imperfect. But that was perfect for the time, if that makes sense. Um, when it's sort of challenges that are deeper and longer and involve things like improving skills in the workforce and changing our migration system, perhaps, and helping businesses um, pivot, those things take so much longer. So I take your point and I've seen you make it quite a bit on social media (laughs) about the lost opportunities. And I I would 100% agree there's probably some in there, but I would also say that um, there are a lot of challenges that by the time you've started to reckon with them, the wheels are already in motion and it's really hard to catch up once that you know, am I gonna mix some metaphors here, but once that snowball's going down the hill, you know, it's so hard to get in front of it and stop it. So I don't know necessarily that I have a kind of playbook of what should have happened. Um and so when I don't have that that answer, I find it really hard to say to say to a government, you should have done this. Like I don't know what those things would have been, but I can't say that I think it's played out particularly well either. I'd also say that there is a um a startlingly small amount of ambition, I think, from the current government. And I don't mean that just in terms of kind of the current 2023 inflation issue, but I feel like if you're going to say we're going to leave this up to the RBA and we're going to get out of their way, which isn't like the worst potential thing a government could do. We've seen many of them push in the other direction. That's an okay, like, you know, it's not the best, but it's an okay that could help. But it's an okay, like, first position. But I think if you're going to do that, then the public expects more of you, at least in terms of language and big talking about your plans for getting the nation back on the track in the medium to long term. And I know that Jim Chalmers, um, he does talk a really big game and he's very inspiring about the things that he would like to achieve and the way he sees Australia in the next 10 years. But I don't necessarily think that I personally see him explain what those steps need to be enough in the meantime, like what are we supposed to be doing to get to that point? Um, And particularly on things like, you know, the dreaded tax reform, no one likes talking about it in politics. I feel like we bang that drum all the time across the media and it just, you know, constantly falls on on, uh, deaf ears. And I think... um, Even with housing, to an extent, we've seen some steps in the right direction, but it's really everyone knows that's not going to actually shift the dial at all. Like I don't think the government's even saying this is going to solve affordability. It's just something that will stop it getting worse. Um, So I don't know. There's some big problems like that that I'd love to at least see them talking about openly if they're not going to be doing much in the immediate.
1: I love that, mate. You've, you've given me—I've written 15 things down here. So this could be a four-hour conversation. So <laughs> straight, straight, strap in and get a coffee. No, <laughs> we we may—we may have to come back another time. Hey, um. By the way, the way you've, that was a very listeners—you would have heard Jennifer very nicely then say, "I follow you on social media, Scott. You're a bit of a loud mouth. You're oh. really <laughs> not getting things right. But you know, here's he, the, the reasonable person assumption. All.
0: You're like on my must-read list of tweets when uh, I come on. Oh, to see, mine, that's so. very kind.
1: That's very kind. Um, there is though. I, can I, I? There is no finance without politics. There's no politics without finance and i guess when i say politics i really mean policy but policy is politics and vice versa right um and you talk about that i think your phrase was startling lack of ambition and i think that's maybe the the most surprising maybe even frustrating uh, part of the current government i i you know without being party political uh, uh, for a for a, a first-term government to have got within our 18 months or so into their term they are bleeding electoral support, largely, I presume, and I'm no politics expert. I don't necessarily need you to, or expect you to comment on it if you don't want to. But they're bleeding support in the polls um, without kind of having actually done much of note. And there'll be plenty of partisans listening to this and saying, oh, of course they're doing everything, and plenty of other partisans saying, no, they've done absolutely nothing. And and the truth is probably somewhere in between. But I, I kind of can't remember a government having lost what was pretty overwhelming public support on, on election so quickly, without actually having done all that much, they don't really have that much to show for it. Paul Keating famously talked about political capital, you know, be, being made to be spent, and and the government dies, you know, starts dying from its first day. Um, where, so I guess that's a, that's a comment. You feel free to feel free to comment on that or, or ignore it. But
0: yeah, I, I certainly will. I mean, I I'm like pretty much. A political, I know people don't believe that of journalists but honestly I have my misgivings about both sides of politics very deep misgivings and deep love is different things that different politicians have done on both sides but I think what really interests me is that that sharp decline because as you said when um if you remember the night when Albo got in and this strange sense of optimism and I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be as big as it was but there, there was suddenly like this feeling I had people calling me up who were you know, I would expect to have voted a different way and they were really excited about what the year was going to bring or uh, the years, the few years ahead. And I think, firstly, um, probably the voice played a big part in the general feeling about the government and I think if the voice had been happening at any other time when we weren't having the cost of living crisis, I think the conflation of those two things was far too easy for the opposition to pick apart and say they're out of touch and use it as kind of a bit of a sacrificial lamb and I, uh, you know, I, I think that that was mishandled On both sides. And um, that's kind of, I think, led to this lack of willingness to do anything else and to do anything bigger, at least until another election comes around. But I also think that that um, perhaps underestimates the willingness of the public to say, give us something to kind of dream about and to think really big about that we can see ourselves as part of and that we can see ourselves as giving a better a better world to our children. And that has to, at this point, has to have a financial element to it because that's what people are struggling with. So I think if they can tap into that and they can say, we can improve this, maybe not right now, maybe not in the next 18 months and there will be that pain, but here's our view for what the next five to 10 years could look like and here's what we have to do together. I think they could get people on board really quickly. It's just all we hear is, at least now we've got some, sort of comments, I suppose, coming from the RBA and from the government where they're saying things like, We really understand that people are doing it tough. Like thumbs up for that. That's it's a good start. thing. They should exactly. acknowledge, should acknowledge that. That's great. Then they need to say, um, you know, if they're not going to do anything, here's why we're not, make it really clear, this is what we're going to do so that we don't have to go through this again or so we're on better footing for next time. And all we hear is, oh, we're going to bank some of the extra money that we've saved so that we don't have to pay a big interest bill. Tell us why. Tell us, because a crisis is probably going to come sooner than most of us are expecting because of the nature of the world at the moment. Tell us these things, you know, and I I just feel like the language needs to do a lot more heavy lifting than it is if they can't actually do anything with the policies. You know, they need to do more politics if they're not going
1: to do the policy. <laughs> yeah, let's get one of the two right, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Uh, the, the lack of ambition, though, I kind of want to double double down on that, mate, because whether you, whether you oh, no, not you personally, whether any listener is supportive of, of the Labor Party or the LNP, whether they voted for one or the other, the sense that a new government comes to power with, in theory, a reason for... Wanting us to believe they're better than the other lot and, and therefore showing that with something to be done. I think that optimism is right. I think even if you, I mean, if you're arrested on, you're arrested on. But for the vast majority of us who aren't, you kind of think, okay, well, either my party won or their party won. Hopefully, in either case, they'll use that for good. Um, there seems to be a real lack of, and again, I'll use your word, ambition. A- and and maybe worse, the action that would come with that ambition to actually make some changes, as you say. I mean, the last government with the opposition support legislated tax cuts two or three years in a- ahead. Um, I mean, I mean, the government could at least say, "Look, now's not the right time. We're putting this in place for some future time," or or be seen to be doing something. They they feel scared. And again, it's not necessarily about the politics. We want to spend too much time on this. is about the the economics and the finances of the country. But but there is some element of. All of those topics you talked about, you mentioned housing, you talked about people doing it tough, you mentioned population, you mentioned interest rates. There doesn't seem to be clearly a a, a sense that the government's prepared to acknowledge, A, the problem will be any real potential solutions much past, well, at least we've been restrained. That that seems to be the best that Jim Chalmers has been able to offer publicly thus far. I I don't think you think that's the wrong approach. I think that's exactly what they have done is said, well, we're not going to scare the horses. I do worry that we are missing some really significant opportunities and, frankly, needs to make some of the big changes in that area.
0: You know, it's it's really interesting because I think um – would have been gosh three four months ago now whenever we launched capital brief i sat down with jim chalmers for our launch edition and we had this quite long i think it ended up being about an hour and a half chat about his vision for the future and his vision for the the new economy and i remember i mean he's a politician so of course they're all like quite charming (laughs) and very convincing and you know we all understand that and and i walked away and i did feel inspired by that chat because i Mm, feel like mm. he does see that there are things that we should be doing can be doing so i wonder what it is that is um handcuffing him at the moment is it that perspective that they'll get crucified uh by the libs is it something else inside the party is it sort of you know is it Albo? i don't know i'm (laughs) I'm spitballing here i'll probably get some hate mail from that but you know you've got to wonder like what is it that's stopping that those sorts of like thoughts of big ambition from actually translating into stuff that or at least making us feel convinced because i think i've seen some people question him and say where's your big ambitious agenda. I think it was a Herald piece um, not long ago where he was asked about it and he goes, no, we are doing reform. We are doing all these things. So why isn't that translating into how we perceive what he's doing? And I think that's, you know, and I haven't got an answer to that either, but I think it's really interesting as to whether that perception matches reality or what is it that's sort of making him so frozen from being able to do anything. Um, But I mean, housing, Oh, housing is a perpetual favourite of mine, but that's one where I I have a bit of sympathy for the government because what a mess (laughs) and what are they actually going to do about it because building, building a whole bunch of stuff or at least promising to build a bunch of things when we haven't historically been able to do so, everyone keeps saying supply is part of the problem, we need to fix supply, but then fixing it seems impossible. I mean, I just, it's a headache. Every time I look at that whole issue, I just... You know, it's pretty overwhelming. I can only imagine how it feels to be on the receiving end of the criticism. So,
1: and, and so, Jennifer, I'm going to put you in the position right now. I'm going to make you treasurer for a day, or at least <laughs> five minutes. Um, w- there are political pressures, and there are realities of, or maybe just perceived realities of, of, of the electoral system. So let's put those aside. Mm. Let's say you are you are appointed treasurer. You can't get a second term, no matter what you do. Uh, <laughs> but your job is to fix housing. Um, and I know this is a horribly unfair question because you've just said how hard this thing is, but Without, without the political realities, without the political requirements, if your job was to to modify the housing system or the housing, I hate using the term housing market, but the reality is, you know, whatever we call that thing, to make housing affordable and accessible and whatever else, mm. what, what are the levers that a, a government that really didn't care about re-election, which is the, the ultimate <laughs> oxymoron, but, but what, 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 are the, what are the right levers to pull in the interests of the country?
0: Is this the if I'm going to be really unpopular? What would I what would I do to fix housing? <laughs> yeah, you uh, you've seen me on Twitter before. You know, I, I inhabit about. that world. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like you're leading me to to talk about uh, landlord tax breaks. Um, which go for it? You to maybe I don't know. And this is the this the kind of the best answer I could give for this, which is why I'm like quite soft now on the attacking people on housing. Is that I really, with the kind of current structures that we have, to unwind some of them is so difficult to actually do anything without destroying the wealth of a really significant portion of the country as well is really hard. So yes, I agree the answer like largely has to be supply and rezoning. I mean, I'll I'll give a bit of a, uh, a personal anecdote here because I think this illuminates something. But there's a relative in my family who's been attempting to develop a block of um of 80 properties. And it's taken three years to get council on board and council were the ones who sort of suggested it might be a good idea in the first place. And that's before it goes to New South Wales planning. So I feel like just that little, little thing, if you think about that magnified, and that's in a regional area of mine, so the council's a little bit different. But uh, if you think about that kind of magnified across the country, we have just like some pipeline problems, some capability problems with local council. So I feel like a bit of a focus on that third tier um might be helpful and i know we're doing a bit of that in some of the cities at the moment i think um i think there has to be a bit of decentralization and we'll, this kind of moves into flexible work which is you know obviously our other big theme of of 2023 but i think um i think if we're going to embrace flexible work and i hope that we do even though we're seeing it not being embraced at the moment but if we're going to embrace flexible work surely we should be getting town planners more into the discussion about can we redesign our regions to make them places where new migrants actually want to live rather than i don't know if you remember the old policies where it was like if you want to be here and be on some fast track busy you have to go and spend x amount of time in the middle of absolute nowhere right like (laughs) it's just a a social disaster like how do you do that to people you know come and come and create a little community around people who speak the same language and have similar things to you and then drag them away to a regional area where no one you know where they don't know anyone and it's really difficult to have community so i think there's sort of like some longer term things like that I honestly, um, I remember writing this piece not long ago where I interviewed a bunch of people about how we solved the housing crisis and so many of them just said to me, there is a generation right now that won't get there, will not see affordable housing. Sorry, basically. And I mean, I, I find it really hard to reckon with that, but I think they might be right that there is sort of a 20, 30-year-old cohort, probably also the teens right now, who are going to really have a hard time and none of this is going to help them. Um, I mean, I don't know how you tell your, you know, I don't know if you have children or what they are, but like how do people tell children of that age, sorry, but this is going to be a problem for you. I mean, yeah, yeah, sorry, that's I wouldn't so be a very true. good treasurer, would I?
1: <laughs> 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 There's a
0: reason I chose journalism and not politics. yeah. So. <laughs> no,
1: and, and, and honestly, the answer so far is exactly why you're a great journalist, mate, because your ability to get to the, the nub of the issue and identify the, the what to the say? I don't, don't
0: know. No one knows. This is terrible. Yeah, I wish I had I, answers to <laughs> people. I wish I had a really w. strong <laughs> opinion that was like, you know, kill all negative gearing <laughs> and it will solve a problem. I don't know necessarily yeah. that, that negative gearing shouldn't be looked at. I just don't think it will, you know solve affordability overnight which again i probably hate mail from that too
1: <laughs> it's not the silver bullet is it i no. um so listen so i've i've my my couple of point uh so i'm i'm less humble than you are uh, which is which is a failing of mine uh but I, i've suggested that uh that i would grandfather negative gearing i think we leave it for those who own the houses because pulling a rug out are from, you from running some a protection racket
0: for the boomers scott it <laughs> well, pretty much
1: it sounds like it doesn't it? It does. I, I look I'm not even I'm not even gonna get rid of it altogether, but my, my gut feel is that the the economic damage that we would cause by pulling the rug out for with negative cash flow property when they had yeah. to then cover the tax break as well. Would be, you know, but people say oh, we should have a recession that will clean the economy out. I'm kind of like, okay, oh. but the business, right? The businesses that fail, the people who lose their jobs—that's a pretty brutal way to get back to some sort of, you know, black and white on paper ideal. And I kind mm. of feel the same about property, right? We want to become, we want to be, oh, I want it to become meaningfully more affordable as quickly as possible. But the as possible bits, you know, it's the old line about make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. You know, th- there is some, there is some complexity in the middle.
0: I don't have a problem with capping the number of properties people can own. Like, I, I genuinely think that should be talked about more. I mean, I, I have an investment portfolio, but not of property. And I do, I haven't chosen to have property in my portfolio for moral reasons. And I think, um, you know, I think that should be talked about a little bit more. Like there, I think there are some people who are starting to opt out now from being landlords because it's like, how can you, how can you take part in that system? Now, I understand there are a lot of financial pushes towards doing that. And so, the, you know, it's sort of telling you that you should, I'll probably be richer if I did. um, But I I also feel like, is it really is that a society that we want where someone can accrue that number of properties and that to be appropriate? And I've written plenty of those profiles in my past life as a property reporter, where it's like, here's a (laughs) young kid who, you know, drives a train and owns 30 properties. And isn't it amazing? And it's kind of, I wrote them out of fascination more than anything. Like how does this even work? And the maths is um, incredible, but um, you know, you have to sort of think, is that, is that what we want Australia to look like? And I think those are maybe, maybe this would be my approach as treasurer, but, surely you've just got to at least have that conversation with people. I don't think we've had a chance in a while to just say, what should our society look like? Like, what is it that people want? And we all make a lot of assumptions. I do it all the time. I make assumptions about what I think people would like our country to look like. Um, and often that's wrong. So I think if we, you know, maybe maybe everyone wants the ability to become a multi-property portfolio-owning, you know, human being one day. And so we should leave it as it is. I don't know. And like I said, probably because of the nature of your listeners and uh, they're probably much more savvy about uh, investments and whatnot. And so they probably will have portfolios that are probably not talking to the converted here. But, you know, it's it's just interesting. I feel like we should have those things on the table Um, and they're not at the moment at all.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I think I'm, I think we're pretty lucky. We've got some really smart listeners who uh, put up with put up with different points of view. We certainly in this podcast, and the other one I do, Motley for Money, we're, we're, we don't hold back with are uh, sharing sharing different thoughts. And I figure if we can be honest and thoughtful, if people disagree, they'll disagree honestly and thoughtfully. Hopefully, so that's that's always been my approach. Was why I'm not scared to kind of do some of those more difficult conversations. I, I, I do I do want to ask you about the the sizable elephant in the room. And if you follow me on Twitter, you will you do you'll, you'll know that I've I've banged on about this one as well. I I really hate the conversation about population growth, and I hate the conversation because it then becomes about migration, which is the which is the main lever because you can't control the birth rate, at least not, not in any reasonable side. Indeed, society. handmaid's
0: tail and, style. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. It's like, go and and then it becomes about racism and xenophobia, and and then people start to reply, as I have to my tweets, yeah, well, it's this race, or so we'll keep more of those people out. And that's that's the really ugly side of this conversation. I, I fear though the downside of that is by not having it, we kind of then leave the 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 field open to those with some pretty unpalatable views and frankly those who would exploit that cynically for for their own personal or political gain. So so I do want to ask you about that. We talked about supply and that's part of the solution. It strikes me that if you know we have a housing supply problem letting the population grow by a a rate which seems to me to be unsustainable is reasonably reckless on behalf of everybody the people that are already here the people who are coming i'm I'm strongly pro-migration i think immigrants make us better i I think frankly you know immigration is is one of australia's superpowers we have more people who want to come than can come uh so you know the, the that 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 by definition is a remarkably attractive situation to find ourselves in but I have to believe that for all of the other conversations, whenever we say, "Yeah, well, it's supply or it's zoning or it's whatever," those other things are, and they're not. It's not they're not real, but it's almost ignoring the fact that if you kind of just turn the tap down a little bit, we can have the time and space to solve some of these things. So, I guess I'm curious, and, and I'm making a statement because that's what I've said publicly before. Feel free to disagree entirely uh, or agree <laughs> in whatever form you want to. But what's your thought on on how we manage population as part of our economic challenge right now?
0: Yeah. Look, firstly, I. Um very much appreciate the way that you frame this question because i think it's the most respectful way in which to talk about population which is to say yes there's a lot of xenophobic elements out there but this conversation doesn't need to be about that and i'm an immigrant you know my my partner's from a family of immigrants my parents are immigrants like we're an immigrant family um and so to me like it is it can be quite personal in the way that i see people talk about this um but you know it's interesting because you also think and I agree with you. Immigration makes us better as a nation. Of course, I would think that as an immigrant. But yes, there is a there is still a level there that shouldn't shouldn't be the right level, and I find that hard to figure out exactly what that is. Now, I take your point that if we were to, you know, turn the tap down a little bit, we would play some catch up. But we didn't do that during COVID. Maybe that was one of those failings of the COVID years. We had this extra time. We needed to have economic stimulus. All we had really on the home building front was um you know the home builder grant uh which kind of ended up going to people who already pretty much Funny had enough. intentions to build right like I got it and I was like we we're already sort of discussing and planning a build so that's yeah. I don't know that that was as uh you know <laughs> necessarily created as much stimulus as they were anticipating um and it created some other building issues I think um I think what's interesting to me is that we have sort of that longer term problem around the aging nature of our population around the need for care roles there's lots of jobs that Frankly, Australians in general don't want to do, and migrants will happily do, and we need those roles filled. So I think there has to be a balancing of, yes, we have this short-term housing problem, but we're also having these really entrenched longer term issues. and it, just turning the tap down for those two years might feel like a really simple policy outlook. But what might that do to the willingness of people to come to Australia? What might that do to that like lag effect down the track? And I remember um I wrote this piece about Stephen Hamilton's views on the ways in which the media was covering population in particular, but other issues as well. And he was quite concerned about the kind of oversimplifying of population on this particular topic. Um, and so I'm really, you know, with that in mind from from someone who's way more educated on economics than I could ever wish to be, I uh, it gives me real pause when I think about is it as simple as slowing down that tap? I don't know. Um but I, I don't necessarily think it should be off the table and that people should be called xenophobic for suggesting that population pressures are reduced. Like I think <laughs> I think that's a reasonable conversation to have. And, you know, supply and demand are two parts of this. So yes, I think it's I think it's worth discussing. I also think that the government's quite wary of um of opening that conversation up too. Like they mentioned it. They did mention it in the migration settings. They were like at this point with housing, da-da-da. But there wasn't a big, you know, I think when I actually looked up the migration report, maybe there was like six mentions of Five inches or something of affordable housing. It's a lengthy report, so it's interesting. Um, but I, yeah, I don't have any answers for you. But I take your I take your opinion.
1: <laughs> In my utopian world, mate, there there is a, a great need for far more joined up. That's a horrible cliche. whatever if we want to call it coordinated <laughs> planning right across different policy yes. areas? When I've when I've looked at uh, the, and, and you kind of start with one policy I mean, you can because they're all it's a spider web, right? So it was with. with housing, then we talk about population, then we talk about infrastructure, and we talk about uh, appropriate taxation. We talk about working from home. We talk about uh, the impact on the environment, for example, and those things, the urban sprawl, uh, the the subsuming of, of native forests and, and farmlands and other things. And it's kind of hard to know where to start and where to stop. And at, at some point, you end up writing a, writing a, you know, a political party manifesto when you kind of have to address all the bits. But there is so much that happens there. I think that's what I love about your approach to economics is it's not a single. It's not a single issue. It's not a single topic. And there's no single A plus B equals C answer that exists in isolation. There are puts and takes, and there are you know needs to consider all these different parts. As someone who has um, got a background, you care about the environment. You've tweeted about it before. You've written about it. Um, I'm curious as to how you think about modern economics in that world um, in Bhutan famously they measure gross national happiness uh, we know there's the idea of the triple bottom line um, and some of these feel like buzzwords I think for those of us I'm, I'm a 100% in your corner for those of us who think that we are you know, doing untold damage to the environment and not fixing it quickly enough because we can't measure or count it. And in a world, and you and I live in the economics world where everything that in theory can be counted gets counted and everything that counted can be, counts, uh, can be counted. Um, I'm curious as to, your, as to your thoughts on how we best deal with this challenge with your economists or your, your, your economic journalists hat on. Uh, we know there are things that need to be done and should be done when you have a prism like this that the world seems to see the environment through how do we make those changes mate how do we how do we take real action in a way that society is going to find palatable
0: yeah you know i think it's interesting because the way in which we the way in which you measure economies and economic success um seems to lend itself to looking at it always through that and i'll go into and some terms that people might not necessarily like here, but the human view of always looking at things for human value, right? So we want to see it benefiting our lifestyles. We hear about that a lot. You know, productivity is all about improving our ability to work less and have more stuff. Um, and and economic growth is always about sort of producing more crap. <laughs> and a lot of it is rubbish. It's like creating a new product for the sake of it. You know, there's some economic <laughs> growth that's yep. very valuable. People having yep. jobs is very important. Like I'm I'm not here for a recession don't want that you know very pro us continuing to grow in healthy ways but i do think there is a fundamental overlooking of um of the environment and being able to step outside of the economy a little bit and just say these things are important and even if we're not ascribing a financial dollar which we need to do for equation reasons i understand that but there are some (laughs) things that are sort of fundamentally important yeah. Just because they, you know, they well, they are actually important to us. Like the environment keeps mm. us all alive, and you know, <laughs> as, we're, as we're now seeing from wild weather patterns, I can't when like you for mess air
1: with and, it, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right.
0: Like you know, there there are certain things that just are intrinsic to all of us. But I I do think that the um, I th- I think we're missing. I don't know if this is going to be a little bit too esoteric for <laughs> for this podcast. No, but I have go this. Well, I have this bit of a view of the world in which um particularly in the Western world, we've lost a lot of the stories that make us value things in an intrinsic way. So if you look at a lot of Indigenous cultures, they have really deep stories. In Australia, you can get the rainbow serpent. My, my partner's is um, Indigenous. So like there are these stories about valuing things that have no dollars attached, but in, inherently those communities know to value those things and what they mean to them in a spiritual way, and you cannot necessarily measure of the dollar value of this of the spirituality element of that as much as economists would like to try to yes you can value like uh you know the sea gives us this amount of usefulness and this water (laughs) feeds you know and this feeds these people and all those things you can measure those things but we've lost something deeply human about the way in which we connect with the earth and with the planet and with our own communities And those things aren't able to be measured. I don't care what every economist is going to say to me (laughs) (laughs) about this. You cannot measure that um, spiritual connection and that feeling. And I think that because we've broken a lot of those stories and we've lost a lot of that mythology, really, um, there is going to be a really long climb until we actually value some of that inherently. So while we can't do that inherently, we do have to do it economically if we want to actually protect some of those things. And so I do take... um, Quite a lot of comfort in the well-being budget that has started to lay out. Unfortunately, and this is another thing where I've been really disappointed, I feel like it doesn't get talked about anymore. Um, you know, like in the what would that have been the last big budget, it was sort of announced. Here's all these different measures of it. Then we had the, the well-being statement, and then there hasn't been anything. And so I feel like we're kind of one step in the way there. We're sort of following other countries around the world in how we maybe do this and look at the ways in which we. Think about the way uh, way communities function and the things that benefit us because that's how we're still framing it. But like that conversation isn't being had properly because we started it. Where's it gone? <laughs> and it is a little difficult, I think, in when crises are happening to talk about well-being because it sounds like what was the criticism thrown at Jim Chalmers? It was like yoga pants and candles or something, you know, bell <laughs> right. and candle, I don't know, yeah, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. And uh, but I feel like it's it's more important than that, and it isn't just touchy-feely as much as you know, my my meanderings about spirituality and mythology probably make it sound. Uh so I, and I feel like if you can if we can talk about that measurable aspect a little bit more and get people understanding that there is a value to other things and that kind of puts it within the economic framework that people understand, then we're a step closer to that inherent value. Um but and I also take great uh great faith in the younger generations that they seem to have much more of an awareness of the importance of this stuff than perhaps my generation ever did when they were younger and those older than me. So, you know, that's a long way around (laughs) answering that question.
1: No, it's a, it's a great answer, mate. I, I love that. I, I'm, I, you're talking about um, young people doing pretty well, and this is slightly macabre but also appropriate. Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize, laureate, uh, Nobel Laureate, um, or at least the uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, not officially a Nobel, as we all know, um, <laughs> famously said that economics progresses one funeral at a time, which is which is both macabre and true, right? There is some <laughs> element of, you know, he was asked how do you how do you get people to change your minds? He said, I, I don't. I just I just teach the kids, you know, as they as they're coming through, and I think you're right. I think the kids uh, have have it got you've got it pretty well sorted out. I I say regularly. That uh, we sometimes forget that the society isn't there to support the economy, but the economy is there to support society, and there is a a much bigger picture. As much as you're an economics journalist, mm. as much as this is a, a, a podcast largely <laughs> about finance and economics, the reality is that it's it's a a way to provide the measurement and and transfer of some value in society, but not not the end in itself, and not the society in itself. And I think that's you're one hundred percent right. right.
0: And people think, I mean, economists and journalists have this way of going, this is my beat and therefore <laughs> it is the most important thing in the world. Everything must be viewed through it. And it's like, actually, economics tends to reflect a lot of human behavior. It can help, you know, as we well know through behavioral economics, you can kind of shift and twist and bend. And I think people like to think about those effects and the kind of free economics aspect of it all. But really a lot of it is to do with how do we how do we raise the next generation to value those things inherently? Um, rather than just because the economics tells us to put a dollar value on it. And that, to me, is much more important than, you know, the ways in which we're going to measure <laughs> economic growth necessarily. You know, if you've got a society of people who say these things have value, whether or not we put a dollar value on it, no politician and no business is going to wreck that um, social compact.
1: Let's our minds to 2024 for a second. We're recording this at the end of 2023 uh, you mentioned at the, at the very top the idea that you know the calendar years is just an arbitrary trip around the sun but there is something there's something very deeply psychological about it we just talked about That's the true. way humans think and and there is something really important about it and I think there is some sense that as you know during the covid years every time we turn a new calendar we think oh maybe this should be better than the last and then two months <laughs> in we go oh man so I don't more I don't want to I don't wanna, <laughs> Exactly <laughs> yes. or, or maybe it was worse or more waves <laughs> or whatever I don't want to set us up set us up for failure in 2024 but there is a chance for us to kind of mentally put 2023 behind us and and maybe hope that 2024 might be better and mm. you've already said you're an optimist but yes. how how do you feel like we're sitting i'm not going to make ask you to make predictions but how are <laughs> how are we sitting in 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 late 23 going into 24 how's the economy poised what are you what are you seeing what are you feeling what are you
0: expecting that the new year might bring Well, and I'm not sure on the exact date this is going up, but we we have just had a really nice market run, a little rally that's happened with all this optimism from the US um, after the Fed chair basically said they were looking more at rate cuts than at rate increases uh, next year, so in 2024. So, I, I mean... It's so difficult because I feel like the moment that we had with the Reserve Bank when Dr. Lowe stood down, and Michelle Bullock came in felt like kind of the end of a year for the rBA <laughs> and and we felt like we'd reached that moment. So and I was really optimistic then I was like, look it might you know, the rate rise might be over, and then November happened. Um And so, you know my my hesitancy is like we've already called it before and we're wrong. <laughs> yes, so yeah. you know, i'll I'll learn my lesson and not get too optimistic about it. But it does feel like, inflation is heading in the right direction and maybe that November 1 was just like the final warning shot and uh, perhaps it is all downhill on the rate front from here and so uphill if you've got a mortgage. Um, It's difficult though like I still feel as though um, I still feel like internationally the risks are really significant. Um, I think that every speech we're hearing now from the Reserve Bank in particular is talking about how unpredictable the future is becoming, the impacts of climate and how much that's changing the challenges that they have. I don't know. I feel like even if 24 turns out to be the year that we slayed that inflation dragon, (laughs) the bigger challenges are still yet to come. Like inflation will feel like small fry really in future. Um, But I really, I actually am quite hopeful that you know, can they actually go any further on rates and have much more of a material effect? Like I've got a lot of friends who are really struggling at the moment, um, you know, big mortgages, pretty significant repayments. Christmas is going to be a little bit um, quiet, I think, for some of them. And, I, yeah, I just don't know that any more interest rate rises are going to have as significant effect as they already have. So I think given we're still yet to see the effects of the November one at least and some of the others, Maybe, maybe we've reached the end of that cycle. Am I being really optimistic? What do you think? Do you, you reckon we're uh, reckon we're looking at a good twenty four?
1: I <laughs> I'm hopeful, like you. Um, yeah,
0: I'm gritting my teeth.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, you know what's? So I'll, I'll ask you a question at the end of this. But what I think is interesting is that almost to your point about things being uncomfortable for people that's kind of exactly what the rba needed to do in their view and i think they're right although different different economists and different people disagree if you're trying to remove demand from an economy it has to get to the point of discomfort by definition that, that's kind of almost exactly how you do it otherwise it's kind of a minor irritation and we just kind of kick along and wait for things to get better it's not really until we kind of go oh Oh, okay. Well, now I actually need to kind of do something about that because it's changing my behaviour, and that changing behaviour is exactly kind of what the RBA has been trying to engineer for for eighteen months. I remember during the worst of the the lockdowns, we had national savings or something like twenty percent of income, uh, because we did, we weren't going anywhere. We couldn't. We had nothing to spend money on, and and the government was throwing money around. And it's taken you know, the last GDP numbers, as you as you well know, it was one point one percent. And I think I think that's kind of in hindsight at least, and I kind of twigged to this about six months ago, way too late because I'm not that bright, but I kind of, you know, the idea of national saving had to come down. That was exactly what they needed to do and it's why it took so long because we started with such a, a cash surplus in the economy that kind of getting to that point was was so problematic is that is that something you kind of think is a reasonable description
0: 100% i think i think it's created some really unusual effects in the ways that this cycle's played out because i think everyone knew that there was some cash saved up i don't think people realized how long it would take to burn through it um, I also think that the spending patterns still haven't completely returned to what they were like pre-COVID. So still like not as much, I well, I'd have to double check my numbers on this, but I don't think there's as much kind of travel going on, not quite as much um, of the same sort of consumption. And obviously people are working in different patterns now, so it's changed things. And so I think it's been really difficult to forecast. I also think um, there is something to be said for that kind of in equal way in which it's affecting different households. So there's certainly an older cohort who've paid off all their loans, who are sitting quite pretty and haven't had to change their spending particularly and have actually benefited from some of the interest and um, and superannuation and whatnot doing okay. So, I mean, there's just been some really unusual patterns over the past 12 months, but you know, at the end of the day, it is it is now having the effect that perhaps they'd wanted, but I feel like it's meant that there's been a, a pain much more acutely focused on certain cohorts and that's usually everyone kind of feels it together and I don't feel that it's happening anymore. I worry about how that um, plays out in terms of social cohesion and um, the ways in which people might vote and react to different things. Um, I think that will be really interesting. But, yeah, I, I definitely think there's been some people who've borne a lot
1: more pain than others during this recent cycle. Hey, yeah, uh, mate, you've been extraordinarily generous. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to come back at some other point because I've enjoyed this conversation immensely, and I know our listeners will be enjoying it too. Can I finish with our favourite four questions? Though, can I, can I squeeze another couple of minutes out of you?
0: Yes, you
1: can. All right, here we go. Uh, one of the great, uh, our listeners tend to be obviously they're, they're streamers, they are podcast listeners, uh, and so they love knowing what our guests are watching, reading, streaming. Uh, what, what's occupying your, your leisure time when it comes to entertainment?
0: Am I going to be a massive loser? And I'm going to say a moody Christmas. I'm currently watching reruns as we head into the Christmas season. Is that really sad? Nice. Does anyone ever say sad things like that? They, they normally have like educated responses. I'm like, I'm watching <laughs> no, no,
1: it's always a mix, Australian humour on the
0: TV. Is it like, honestly, outside of work, I quite enjoy comedy in general because it's like we all need a good laugh after... The year that's
1: been. So, <laughs> I like that a lot. I got back from the US only recently, and I watched Love Actually on the plane on the way home. Oh, so speaking so of, speaking of sad, and, and and people can you know throw their pity my way should they choose to. But I, I, I love it watching that again. It's great. Hey, uh, Die Hard is a Christmas movie, though, right? That's
0: yes, one hundred percent.
1: Yeah, I, I knew you'd say that. All right, uh, <laughs> mate. What uh, we've just talked a lot about economics and trends. Are there any other trends you're watching, keeping your eye on? It can be economics socially, more broadly. Anything else going on in the world? Anything that's fascinating you at the moment?
0: Oh, look, I'm going to have to really cliche and say AI. I think we're all absolutely fascinated about what that might mean for the future and, um, you know, the the kind of uh, economic discussions I've been having with people informally are very much about is this a threat to capitalism? Does it embed capitalism? What does this mean just for our economy and our economic system? And I just find that topic just fascinating, like completely, um, yeah, if you want to have a few weeks of diversion in a conversation, <laughs> there's, there's somewhere a rabbit hole to go down.
1: Yeah, if I had another hour, I'd ask you more questions about that, but I can't. (laughs) Um, What advice, mate, would you give someone who is interested in a career in journalism in general or economics journalism in particular?
0: I'd say if it's about journalism in general, um, apply for everything. Don't feel like (laughs) you're not good enough. Don't be scared of other reporters in a newsroom. It, It looks very... Uh, like daggers and smoke and all that stuff on particularly on social media, everyone is so much nicer than they appear on screen at one hundred percent. And mm-hmm. the economics um study, I would say the more reading you're doing, the better realize that you don't know anywhere near the amount that you should. I feel like I am constantly learning every single day and I'm always like, I probably should have known this thing, probably should have known this thing, and that is going to be an experience the rest of my life, I'd imagine.
1: That is great advice. I'm, I'm sure listeners have written that one down. Hey, um, we, talk about, we talk about being optimistic. You're an optimist, I'm an optimist. Uh, so I'm going to finish off with my very, very favorite question of all, which is what are you optimistic about?
0: I'm really optimistic about the um, the tech backlash. I think that um, the last few years in particular, people have finally realised that a, a life on screen doesn't replace your life in the physical. And I think that realisation, you know, I've come from an era where, I mean, I didn't have the internet for all of my childhood but through pretty much all of my teen years and it became just like screen obsessed, everyone was on screen and I feel like we're shifting away from that. There was a moment there with the metaverse where it was like, oh my gosh, we're going to be sitting in a fake universe forever And I think finally we've actually looked around and we've gone the weather's crazy, Um, the climate matters, animals matter, you know, we need to take care of the physical world around us and I think that that's the thing I'm most optimistic about is that shift in perception. Hopefully it pans out into action, we'll see.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a vote for reality I love that Jennifer thank you so much <laughs> mate you, you have been thoroughly thoroughly fascinating I am actually absolutely going to ask you to, to come back and, and join us another time because there is so much great stuff we talked about and so much we didn't have a time to, to get to mate you're the economics correspondent for capitalbrief.com which if you're not already reading that you really should be listeners it, it is great work um, Jennifer Duke is one of the very best economics journalists in the business and I'm not saying that because you're here mate I invited you, <laughs> no, invite you on because it's true that you are uh, an absolute That's very gun. Sweet. Your thank your you. writing is always no no. Your writing. I'm not, here's the thing. I, I could invite anyone else on, right? So I invited you on specifically because I thought it was true. Um, your writing is always excellent. Your perspectives are, are super useful and, and super interesting. So uh, thank you for doing that, mate. How else can people follow you and get more from Jennifer Duke?
0: Oh, look, if they if they feel like torturing themselves with pictures of dogs, they can come on um, X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it now, at Jenny yes. Duke, uh, with an IE, Jenny Duke. Um, that's pretty much it because I'm one of the weirdos that doesn't really use much social media. <laughs> but when you, it do, is. when you do
1: it, it's well worth following. Jennifer Duke, you have been an absolute jam. All the best for the new year, and thank you for joining me for The Good Oil.
0: You too. Thank you so much.
1: This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.